Is there a secret alpha longevity in development? How much is this idea worth? Nothing, <laughs> right? You know, what is important is, you know, who's going to, you know, spend the millions of dollars, years of work are going to be required to take that all the way. Welcome to Learn With All. Today we are joined with Javier Tortable. He's the technical director at Google. Uh, normally I ask everyone to subscribe to tell the Google gods that this is content worth watching, but uh, I, I assume since we have Javier here that they're listening and they'll know on their own. So Javier, welcome to the show. I look forward to jumping into these topics. Thank you very much. Thank you a lot. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be here and I'm very excited about uh, chatting with you. You started on mathematics. Uh, you, and then you slowly work your way into being in Google. And as someone who does MVPs and works on projects, I always am curious when people have an idea and they're mapping it out to see if it's real, just for fun. Uh, you seem like a guy who just tinkers a little bit, maybe I'm wrong, but do you have an ideal tech stack or like a go-to way to test out your ideas when you have ideas to, to play with? It could be personally or professionally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if my you know idea for a tech stack is, is better or worse than anybody else's. I would say, mm -hmm. What matters is... A quick note, Uncle Sam wants you to help make this show successful. Subscribe and become a member today. To be able to uh, try out something as quickly as possible or, or with as little cost as possible. Uh, and this is something that took me quite a few years to, uh, to learn. You know, I think when, you know, there's this phase, right? When, uh, when you're running programming in which uh, at the beginning, you know, everything may be very simple and you just, you know, start your Python command line and start you know, typing things and, and see what happens. And then things get, you know, gradually more complicated. And, and then you suddenly need to set up your, your, your continuous integration and your, you know, code repository and, and, and your, you know, you know, uh, access policies for data, you know, buckets and so on and so forth. And then eventually things kind of get a little bit simpler again. Uh, so I would say uh, today uh, when I need to try something out, I, I would probably use Cola. Uh, I really like Cola. It's 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 uh, you know it's very easy to get started. It's very easy to share things with other people. Um, it's easy to get a you know a GPU, for example, if you need some kind of hardware acceleration to try out you know, models or whatnot. And uh, and especially there's a lot of collabs that uh, people have put together. Um, so when I need to do something, you know, like say I need to try out new you know LLM. Uh, mm -hmm. or, or I want to you know play with a new API. I would probably start with the with a collab, uh, and then if uh, you know if it works, or if I need something a little bit complicated, I'll figure out you know how that you know how that code needs to be deployed or, or whatnot. Uh, but but I like collab, uh, and uh, and if for whatever reason collab doesn't work, you know, there's like vertex notebooks, which is basically the same thing, but inside of you know somebody else's you know Google Cloud project. Yeah, and this uh this relates to a topic I wanted to ask someone who works at Google and can answer this. Uh, when, what is the benefit in doing Google Cloud versus on-prem if I'm building something? Is there, I imagine if I'm if I'm sitting and I'm thinking I'm in longevity, I'm trying to build up an MVP, maybe a mathematical model, maybe uh, something with an AI uh, for computational biology or what have you. I would probably go to a Google Google Cloud for the computation versus spend the money to build on prem. It's, but I am curious if you're if you're if, if you're building like doing some R and D or building MVP, how do you how do you see the Google Cloud or the cloud in general on prem debate that happens? Yeah, so I would say there are two sets of reasons. Uh, one 
One set are the classical reasons why somebody would move to the cloud as opposed to working on an open system. And, and the other said, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit more, you know, what are the reasons right now to do that? Mm -hmm. So when you look at the evolution of cloud, right? If, you, if we had this conversation, you know, four or five years ago, the reasons to use cloud would have been uh, basically the following. Um, you can reduce costs, for example, because when you set up a system on-prem, you have to put up all the money first, you have to build that system, and then you pay for that, whether you use it or not. So if the uh, uh, usage that you make of that system is sporadic, for example, maybe you use it only for like, you know, three, four hours a day, uh, every day, well, you're still paying for the whole thing instead of paying for what you use. So when you move to the cloud, you switch to a model, to a cost model, which you pay only for what you use. Uh, and that sometimes is, is very meaningful. Um, if you're doing experiments, for example, um, there is a significant difference between running thing or running your experiment on a computer on-prem and waiting three days for it to finish um, versus running it on, say, you know, 100 machines in the cloud and waiting just half an hour uh, for it to finish. Um, and then, you know, maybe doing another experiment. Uh, the cost may be very similar, uh, but doing, a, a, you know, an experiment in half an hour means that you can do multiple experiments in a day and move much faster than if you need to wait a week before mm -hmm. the iteration of your experiment. Um, so uh, a lot of the reasons why people moved to the cloud initially were, you know, reduce costs to, to consolidate, you know, different architectures and so on and so forth. Now, today, uh, I think most of the reasons why uh, a company uh, or an organization moves to the cloud are related to accessing capabilities that are much harder to access uh, in on-prem systems. So, you know, uh, Google Cloud, for example, we have this this, uh, this system called uh, BigQuery, uh, which is like a database, but but much, much more powerful. And it has a lot of functionality that most databases just don't have, right? Where you can process, you know, you know, geodata, uh, where you can, you know, run AI models as part of, you know, your SQL queries, right? And it has a lot of really cool uh, functionality. So, you know, that functionality in general is not going to be accessible if you, if you run open systems. I would say it's maybe the same with uh, with some AI systems, right? So if you want to use, uh, you know, a large number of GPU accelerators, if you want to use TPU uh, accelerators, uh, in order to, to drastically optimize your, your machine learning code, that capability is only going to be available in the cloud. So, um, so the, the, the classical reasons which were related to cost, you know, have now become uh, reasons related to functionality, right? The, mm. the cloud, you know, ours or, or somebody else's, you know, would typically have things that are just not available uh, with, uh, with on-prem systems. And I think at the recent, I don't know if they're called shareholder meetings. It's just like where Google gets together and talks about their products. The uh, Sundar, if I'm saying the name right, the, I've never said Sundar, it out. Yeah. Oh, Sundar, thank you. Um, the, it was more on AI products, like the, the Gecko, I think it is, like the really small one that can like be on phones or like uh, modular devices. Uh, I feel it seems like Google is going more towards AI technology, you know, in their systems versus uh, where they used to be like an indexing and search function um, type company. It seems like that's like the transition they're they're going, and so I was wondering if you, who are the leaders in AI, and then, um, from your point of view, is a closed system, which I think Google is more of a closed system. Then there's like false open AI, which is not a clo uh, open system anymore, or like Microsoft, which is like junior Microsoft, versus like these open LLM type models and AI that's being developed with everyone working together. Um, where do you think the the advancements 
for people who are listening in, wondering about longevity or wondering about AI, where do you think like the biggest advancements are going to be coming from? Is it going to be like Google, who's now transitioning more and more and more to, to, towards AI, Microsoft, who's like buying up op open AI's uh, weights and whatnot, or uh, is it going to be a system that is open where people can just like, um, you know, clone the repo and then build whatever they want off of it? Yeah. Um, so uh, lots of things there. So, so let me let me try to unpack. Yeah. So Google has actually been uh, focusing on AI for a long time. Um, Google has been a, a you know a, an AI company, I would say, for many years. And the amount of investment that Google has made on AI research uh, has been you know staggering. Uh, literally hundreds, if not thousands, of people working for many many years in in and billions of dollars, right? Um, and a lot of it has been made public, right? You know, transformers, for example, right, which are the one of the core fundamental technologies behind large language models were were invented uh, at Google, mm -hmm. right? You know, a lot of that was was published. You know, a lot of the original Netherlands, you know, better than T five, right? You know, were were published uh, by Google, and they served as the basis for a lot of other developments later. So, um, in general, Google has believed in. In open source and, and releasing uh, scientific discoveries uh, in the open uh, for for a long long time. Um, so, uh, uh, I mean, you know, Google is, is not the only company that does that. I, I would say, you know, in in many ways has been leading the field, right? Uh, but there are definitely a lot of other companies that that have uh, that have followed that path. And and now uh, we we find ourselves in the situation where there is uh, really really strong economic incentives in uh, large language models. This, uh, these systems, so these models turned out to be really useful for a lot of things. And, and I think a lot of people are feeling, or a lot of folks within, within large companies are feeling that, that there's going to be a you know, very strong economic incentive. So obviously there are many people that are, that are working on that. Now there's this you know, funny situation where because there, is, uh, because there are these uh, really strong economic incentives, um, uh, you know, many people are are competing from the open source side of the world uh, with the large companies, and um, I think it's really hard to say whether the best LLMs are going to come from the you know, Google and, and OpenAI of the world, or they are going to come from the open source uh, side of the world. Um, I think the jury is still out on that. Um, so. Back to the world of, you know, maybe longevity or, or scientific research. I would say what matters is it's not so much who has built better technology. What matters is um, how can somebody take that technology and use it for their specific use case in the in the cheapest or easiest way possible. And sometimes that would be leveraging some product that somebody has put together uh, and you know, even if that product has a certain cost, right? But 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 makes it cheaper or faster to to get to the respective result. Uh, and sometimes it would be leveraging open source technology. So if an organization is if an organization is really strictly limited in their budget, you know, there may not be a choice. You know, outside of you know applying for grants and trying to run things in whatever you know you know cloud or whatever on-prem system is necessary is is available. Um, but uh, you know, if there's a budget, right, and, and, and that can be compared versus the uh, amount of time that it would take to get results, uh, sometimes it's better to just pay for something that is going to be easier to use. So I, I don't think there's a, 
uh, single size uh, fits all uh, answer to this, right? I, I think something yeah. that needs to be considered in the context of you know what are the goals of that organization, what are the what are the the budget of the of the resources. Yeah, and I think that you you've been a um, a fellow at the longevity fellowship retreat. There's not there's a third word there, but I, I don't remember what it is. But so when people have come up to you and they say they want to do something with a computational AI or just AI machine learning LMs, whatever, for the pattern recognition benefit of it, for whatever they want to do, do you recommend them go into the Google thing? And if you're if I'm like pushing to the edge of what you're allowed to say about your employer, just let me know and I'll, I'll pivot. But like, do you recommend them? A certain aspect of what Google can do, or is there something out there that you, you? I mean, granted, like even within that more focused use case, like there's probably there's subdivisions of that use case where you would like suggest different products. But what are the what are the different options for a technology that you generally have pointed people to when you have helped them as a counselor? Yeah, so you know, for people that again, like people that have no money, I would say Colab is really hard to beat. Hmm. Uh, Colab is something that is basically it was originally developed by Google Research and uh, and it's mostly free. Uh, even the paid version is is very very cheap compared with the value that people get out of it. So I think it makes a lot of sense uh, for people to experiment uh, to experiment with. Um, if uh, if it happens to be a startup, for example, that that has some budget, uh, I would say it may be better to opt for another solution, something that brings a little bit more of uh, enterprise flavor and. And uh, you know security controls and, and all sorts of things that are important for for companies that may not be as important, for, say, you know research institutions that are operating in the open. Um, but you know it's it's not a solution for everything, right? Uh, you mm -hmm. know, and I would say you know sometimes you see you know other cloud providers that you know they they come and they give grants and they give you know lots of money to people uh, and and maybe Google you know doesn't match that or whatever. Well, then that's what makes sense, right? Uh, so if you get a research lab and, and somebody from Microsoft comes in and says, hey, we'll give you, you know, $100,000 for this, you know, if you run it on our cloud. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with that, right? Um, mm -hmm. And again, I, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a single solution for, for everything. Um, the, there are a few things that I like uh, that I think, you know, uh, uh, Google Cloud uh, product is, is, is really, really good, uh, better. Uh, in mm -hmm. many ways, but I think the, the BigQuery and the data analytics uh, solutions are really good. I think the AI uh, infrastructure is is pretty good uh, and improving very, very fast. Um, so, um, you know, the, the whole, you know, serverless infrastructure, right? You know, how we deploy uh, uh, containers and, and how we run them, uh, you know, uh, on demand, right? You know, I think that, that story is, is pretty good as well. Um, the hardware accelerators for AI, uh, you know, stories is also really good. You know, other things, you know, maybe maybe not so much, right? But mm -hmm. uh, again, it you know, depends on the on the peculiarities of the specific organization. I would say for people that come from the research side, um, that they just you know they compile some data, they will not you know, start to understand it, you know, see what can get out of it. It's really hard to be something like call up into uh, surprise mm -hmm. and, and what you get you know, for uh, you know for very little money. Yeah, sounds like a, a good option if you're trying to do like a proof of concept, you know, to see if, if it, what you're having even has legs. I think sometimes people, when they're building something, especially if they're new to it, they tend to try to get like the like the 
the fanciest, most expensive version of it. And if you can find, you know, free or free credits or, you know, cheap, and then uh, migrate up as you go, that that's pretty good. And it sounds like collab is not, I haven't used it personally, but um, it sounds like something that you, you can't just migrate up and use other systems as your needs grow, which is good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically a, you know, a document, right? A yeah. notebook in which you have Python code and, and it, it has the capability of, of running that Python code in a, in a computer uh, in the cloud. And, uh, you know, there's a version of it that is completely free. You basically get those resources um, uh, without having to pay anything. Uh, and then the paid version, I think, is like $10 a month, right? It's mm. literally, you know, it's super, super cheap. Uh, and, and the good thing is that there's already a lot of uh, uh, notebooks that people have created and have shared. Um, so you could go and say, well, you know, let's imagine that you have an idea for, a, I don't know, using a diffusion model in order to generate, uh, you know, synthetic data for, you know, uh, say, uh, uh, cell images, right? Well, you know, you could... Uh, you know, you could try to run that locally, right? But, you know, many of us don't have, you know, heavy workstations with GPUs and so on and so forth, right? So something like Gala would probably be very easy. Like you could go and, and try to fork, uh, try to copy a stable diffusion collab from somebody else and, and start making changes and upload your data uh, to it and, and, and process it to that model. And, you know, all that would be basically free, right? Hmm. When, when you're trying to learn more about, uh, computational modeling. Do you? I, I'm recently. I've recently discovered uh, a website called Hugging Face, and I, I like like people do so much on there. It's like it's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Do you do you go to that, or is there like a different resource, water and hole that you go to to learn more about p the potential of AI and, and how use cases and stuff like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, Hugging Face is great. Uh, uh, I I personally, you know, to be honest, I, I get a lot of my uh, AI uh, news from Twitter. Just uh, mm. kind of funny, you know the. Pretty much everybody uh, that, that is doing interesting research in AI goes and then posts their findings or the collabs or whatever, or their hacky face, uh, you know, repos on, on Twitter. Uh, so I get most of my research from there. But when you mean modeling, right, that, you know, there are many different types of modeling, right? So the kinds yeah. of things that, that I've been spending a little bit more time lately are in the computational chemistry side of things, uh, which is a, a little bit of a different uh, universe. Uh, but for AI, uh, yeah, I mean, hiding face, I think, is it's, it's a really nice uh, resource. I personally don't use it that much. Uh, I just don't have time to go through everything. <laughs> but mm -hmm. uh, uh, but I think it's, uh, it's super useful. Yeah, I didn't know if there was a, like a hugging, like somewhere on hugging face, if there was like an alpha fold, open source hugging face equivalent uh, of something like that for people to pull and then do some, some stuff off of it. But um, it, it doesn't sound like something that uh, you use. So if anyone's out there looking to learn more about this type of field, it sounds like Twitter, and search and also the cool thing about twitter if you do the search thing and then you click the advanced option you can get more granular like the the base search sucks uh which is interesting because then we're talking to a, a person at google and we can talk about search which is where they started the um the so what i was recently listening to this interview with a guy named george holt uh hots h-o-t-z who is the founder of tiny corp and he worked at facebook i think it was a twitter at intern for a little uh, at a he was an intern at Twitter uh, for a little bit when he was trying to solve things. I said that backwards. But, uh, and he said that he worked at, he said that Facebook and Twitter are alive, SpaceX is alive, but that he considers places like Google to be dead organizations that don't have, that they don't innovate to the same level as these other ones do. And I was curious, like, I was curious about the dichotomy of what that meant. Um, but as someone who lives in Google and gets to see, like, he gets to be at the coalface for all these things. Well, I, I guess, does that make sense? 
Like, is Google like he, his his proposition basically was Google's not going to be a dominant player in like five like five ish years. Like it, it's like all these other play, people are going to come up and like eat the market share. Bing's going to be like he thinks that Bing's going to be uh, uh, a, a search engine that people will use. Which now that with LLMs and stuff, I actually like I kind of like being a little bit better. Uh, Bard is okay. Uh, I use uh, ChatGPT the most, but all of them are not like truthy system, which is kind of bothering me. Like they, it's like they're pattern recognition systems for what is most likely the outcome versus like what is. Think of like cite their sources that make me happier, which is just a, a, an aside. But as someone who's at, at the coal face, what is the coal? What does it look like? Uh, is Google going to be not not dead in five years, but in the sense of like relegated to a, a lesser standard? Like they're kind of like at the pinnacle now. Yeah, I, I would. Um... Oh, I I don't agree with uh, with that statement, right? And I would strongly uh, question that. Um, I, mm. I would say uh, innovation takes many forms, right? Yeah, you know, and, and you could say that startups in some way innovate very fast because somebody can go from an idea to publishing somebody in a code, uh, publishing something in a code repo, and then and then posting about it on Twitter, right? And and be able to push you know code to production within hours or days, right? And, and, you know, that's great. That's one measure of innovation, right? Whereas larger companies in general are subject to certain sets of constraints that smaller companies are not. Uh, but larger companies also have vast amounts of resources that they, that they can dedicate uh, to, uh, to solving problems, right? So Google uh, from the beginning, uh, still now, is, is an organization with a you know, very, very strong innovation culture. Uh, if you, uh, you know, there, there was actually a, a chart that, of course, you know, I you know, can't show because we're not, we're not presenting. I don't have it handy. But if you actually look at the number of uh, publications in top AI journals, um, peer-reviewed journals, um, Google uh, by itself uh, is, uh, or at least was the last time I checked, the, the top organization in the world. Right, like Google publishes more in AI than anybody else combined, than anybody else, uh, you know, including, you know, in many cases, you know, top universities uh, in the world, right? The, the combination of, of Google plus DeepMind, I would say, has been the leader in AI publications for, for many years. Uh, and I think it still is now. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to, to say that Google is not a nobody place, right? All that stuff is actually happening and is being validated by the scientific community. Um, uh, on the other hand, I also understand that, you know, sometimes when organizations grow to a certain level, it's, it's much harder to innovate. Uh, you know, and, and you could also say, well, you know, how come, you know, Microsoft, you know, seems to be moving so fast now? Well, you know, they they signed a deal with a much smaller, uh, nimbler organization, and then they took those products and incorporated it into their own products, right? Which, you know, in some way that is also a way to innovate, right? Uh, but, but it wasn't Microsoft engineer that, that created the, the, the chat GPT models, right? You know, they, they took them and, and they integrated into their own products. So, um, you know, I, I would say uh, every time that somebody says something like that, you know, it kind of reminds me of this, of this quote, uh, um, I don't remember who it was, uh, but it was something like uh, uh, reports uh, uh, from my death uh, have been greatly exaggerated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say large organizations uh, have a lot of uh, have a lot of inertia, right? And, and they go through ups and downs, um, uh, but it's uh, it's uh, rare uh, to see an organization that is that is fast moving and innovating and suddenly become less relevant. Mm. Yeah. 
the well the number one search in the world is google the second uh second the second level uh what if i can't think of the word i don't know what's wrong with my brain today but is is youtube so like the, the two biggest places to index information and access it are within google's uh library apparently the biggest one for younger people is twitter not twitter uh tiktok like TikTok. they do the most yeah. searching on tiktok though so, um yeah. the, the information is not that great like when i try and research certain things on tiktok to get like bite-sized versions of it it's not the best and there's a lot of dancing people which i i don't find research worthy but yeah. so i can see it both ways but at the same time yeah. bing now is slightly more useful I, I went from like well bing sucks why does this exist you guys well, should just me, close this down to yeah, now let me add a couple of things uh so i'm not a, i'm not a tiktok fan right i i personally think um so i i barely ever watch tv right i think it's it's a very um useless thing to and with tv i mean just you know whatever is playing on tv right as opposed to watching a specific movie or a series right for, for some reason and i think tiktok kind of falls into that right so it can be yeah. very very entertaining right uh but uh but the you know the amount of information that you get or what you learn or what you can develop as a person by watching tiktok for a few hours is it's basically zero right as mm -hmm. opposed to you know going to YouTube and watching TED Talks, for example, right? Or as opposed to, you know, going to, you know, Google and searching for some information and reading Wikipedia pages, right? So I think it's, a, you know, it's a great, uh, you know, uh, time waster. Uh, and, and, and in that sense, you know, they have made a, they have made a, a, a product that fulfilled those requirements, right? But, but it's not something that I, that I would say is, uh, is interesting. Um, so, uh, the second thing that you mentioned, right, is, well, you know, now Bing is more useful now that they have uh, ChatGPT uh, attached to it. Uh, that is true, actually. Yeah, and that is one uh, positive thing for Google, uh, as it is, you know, uh, who would have guessed that uh, having a search engine would actually help with your large language model, right? So um, if you if you uh, watch the, uh, the Google I.O. Uh, uh, conference uh, a month ago or, you know, something like that and one of the interesting things is how the combination of large language models plus traditional search can create a product that is better than any of those two separately uh, and i think that's probably the future search uh, it's probably going to be something that combines the capabilities of uh, uh, abstract uh, understanding of, of extracting information of really capturing uh, user intent from llms with uh, you know vast repository of information and, and a well you know curated uh, you know database uh, from from a traditional search engine, so the combination of both things is probably the future of of search rather than one or the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting. The next five years, uh, I think uh, OpenAI was like the fastest company to a billion in history, which is pretty cool. I just like things are really accelerating, which I think what to a billion what. <laughs> I think it's billion dollars. Like they made a billion, uh, made like a billion dollars. I think in like the close, the quickest amount of time. I think that's what I was reading. Uh, I don't think so. I it's think just like so. A... Yeah, if I remember right, they they were very fast in getting to a hundred million total users. So mm -hmm. so that was uh, super super quick. I think. Oh, maybe it was just users. Yeah, uh, but I I'm not sure they're making a billion dollars uh, mm. just from the APS because the only I mean they they charge ten bucks a month for access to. Uh, GPT-4, I believe, right? And, yeah. and of course, they have the API, but I'm not sure if they have disclosed their revenue numbers. Yeah. Uh, maybe, I mean, I'm, 
I don't work for them. Uh, I don't have mm. any, you know, insider knowledge, right? But I don't remember seeing them disclose their revenue. Mm. I don't know where I read that, so I can't say my source. If I'm wrong out there, people uh, leave in the comments, and I'll de uh, debate you once I reread that. So, uh, talking about comments, I asked people for uh, feedback or thoughts on what they would want to talk about, and I'm not going to say this person's full name, because I don't want to dox them, but I'm going to say Simon out there. Thanks for writing in. They say, um, I wonder if there's a path for computational chemistry and AI research to go beyond small molecule design. If so, what could be done? I thought that'd be a, like a fun first fan listener yes. question to start with, because people... Oh, anyways, yeah, take it away. Yeah, I mean, like we could spend half an hour talking about just this. Uh, you know, this is something that I'm very, very excited about. Uh, I think I'm not a computational chemist, right? But I've been following the field for, for a few years and I'm learning a little bit about it. Uh, and I would say there is a tremendous promise in using AI and, and other computational techniques to improve computational chemistry. Uh, not just the uh, small molecules, but also, uh, but also, uh, you know, different types of of, uh, of macromolecules. Uh, I would say the the most obvious example, right? That you know, hopefully, you know, many of us, you know, I imagine many people watching this uh, this podcast would know about is AlphaFold, right? AlphaFold uh, was um, at least to me, but but I think to a lot of people, very very inspirational. It was kind of a, a milestone because it was a landmark. Uh, you know, moment in applying AI to something that is useful for, for biology and for research and for our understanding of the world. Um, of course, AlphaFold operates on, on proteins, right? And many of them are, are very big. Uh, AlphaFold itself has its limitations in terms of the size of the of the, of the protein, uh, uh, but there are other models that people have built from, uh, from AlphaFold, you know, called AlphaFold and, and so on and so forth that kind of overcome many of those limitations. Um, and, uh, and folks have taken the same principle uh, or the same principles that uh, that, that, that provide the foundation of, for how alcohol works and applied it to, uh, to other types of molecules. Um, I think there was a startup uh, last year that was uh, trying to create uh, 3D structures of, uh, of RNA uh, molecules. But, um, you know, RNA in, in, in some ways, uh, you know, uh, has a lot of interesting peculiarities, right? You know, you know, from from a conceptual perspective, we may think of it as just a, you know a sequence, right? But RNA also falls in in really interesting ways, right? And, and it may interact with with other proteins and with other things inside of the cell in ways that we don't yet fully understand. This company was you know trying to build uh, AI models that predict the folding of, of RNA molecules. Um, there's a lot that we still don't understand about uh, DNA, for example, and and how we you know, it, it wraps and unwraps, you know, around histones and, and what structures it takes when it's, you know, inside of nucleus and when it's, you know, transcribed, uh, right? And what kinds of things, you know, uh, you know, enhance or, 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 or promote or, or, or stop its transcription. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of room for applying similar techniques to other, uh, to other components. Uh, and of course, you know, I think the holy grail in some ways for all of this could be to be able to model, uh, you know, entire you know, organelles, entire cells at some point. I think that's still a little bit too far away. Um, technology would need to advance significantly. Computational power would need to increase drastically for us to be able to step back. But, but uh, I would not discard that something like that may be possible in the future. I said that with AlphaFold, AlphaGo, and all these other different little branches of the technology, why doesn't... Um... Why aren't they able to just uh, replicate it and then apply it to all these different areas and just like gobble it up? You know, instead of 
instead of allowing there to be competitors, why don't they just like have another team work on the the RNA thing or 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 other different molecules since they have like a proven model for alpha folding it um, versus just letting other teams or what other groups do that if they have like all the money and stuff behind it as well. What well, prevents them? Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say there's something necessarily preventing it, right? But but at the same time, I would question that there is a you know a model for it, right? So AlphaFold as a machine learning model leverages data sets uh, that were compiled over many years. You know, these this are you know in the in the protein data bank. And and it leverages the fact that proteins evolve with certain structures. So um, protein folding is a is a really complex problem, right? Proteins can be composed of hundreds or, or thousands uh, of of, uh, of amino acids that fold in all sorts of different ways. So the number of potential variations uh, in which they can fold is uh, very, very large, you know, uh, in the order of, you know, the number of atoms in, in the universe. You know, these things are, uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a tremendous number of possibilities. But the reason why alpha-fold and similar systems work is because proteins don't just fold in random ways. Uh, Proteins fold in, in ways uh, that uh, that have evolved to have a certain function. So, if you have a certain sequence uh, in two proteins, you, know, you may have similarities in how those two proteins fold. Uh, even if you have a different sequence across two proteins, if those proteins say you know may have a similar function in the cell, they may have evolved to have a, a shape that is that is related. So. In some ways, there is a, a latent space uh, or, or a manifold of potential structures of proteins, and AlphaFold helps us find uh, mm -hmm. that space. Now, if you go and take uh, another potential molecular simulation problem, that space of that manifold of possibilities may or may not exist. Um, so, for example, in the case of, of DNA and RNA, there's just a lot lesser structures uh, available in the PDB. So we could go and try to train a model that tries to replicate the same things that does, but you know that may or may not work as well, right? Uh, but if you think in terms of, say, other types of uh, molecules or interactions between different types of molecules, the the data available may be different, right? Or the internal structure of that problem may be different. So. Uh, I don't think it's true that there is a model that, that works on this and can be applied across uh, a lot of different uh, domains, right? I, mm. I would say, in general, each one of these different problems may require uh, a, a specific uh, approach, right? We're, we're still yeah. at, a, at a phase in the development of technology where we don't have a magic wand, you know, a, mm. a, a general AI that we can apply to these kinds of things, right? We're, we're still having to tackle each problem in a bit of an independent way, depending on the peculiarities of that problem. Is there a secret alpha longevity in development? Is there like any <laughs> secret projects like that? Not that I know of. Uh, you know, so Google has been, Observer have actually been interested in what they did for a long time. And of course, you know, that's why uh, Alphabet uh, started uh, Calico uh, mm -hmm. many years ago. And there was some interesting research that came out of that, um, you know, for example, on, on partial reprogramming. Um, uh, 
I think you know some of the people that worked on on AlphaFold uh, then went on uh, and started a, another subsidiary. It's called Isomorphic Labs, uh, and I don't think they have shared much about what they're working, but they're they're obviously working on, on things related to biology and applying AI to biology. So whether they are translating to uh, therapeutics, for example, or or new computational tools for for finding new drugs. Uh, I think it's still to be seen, but but I think that would be very interesting. Um, you know, one one good thing that Google has is for a long, long time, Google has attracted a certain type of person, right? That is uh, unafraid of uh, asking hard questions, right? One of the expressions is for what can we do to uh, to extend lifespan? So, you know, there's there's a surprisingly large number of people like Google that I think are interested in this type of uh, this type of questions more so than you know in the population at large. Yeah. So there could be something going on, and you can't comment. Is how I'm taking that. So the uh, this this uh, uh, in silico model we just talked about a minute ago to be making like virtual cells or what have you. Which reminds me of a question that um, a listener asked, which is their name is Paraphilus. I doubt that's a real name, so I'm going to say it. They said um, this week uh, a biotech company in silico medicine started human trials of a drug discovered and designed entirely through AI. Uh, given that Demis uh, Sabas at Google has said his dream is to create a virtual cell and he thinks it can be done within the next five to 10 years, which is, you know, we're going from like proteins to like a whole cell like we just mentioned. Um, coupled explosion of AI technology in the next five, 10 years, if we couple a bunch of couples here uh, with AGI technology with simulated biology, will it, be pra- will it be practical to cure all diseases with all these different things seeming to explode at the same time? Is the question of Paraphilus 075? In your opinion, um, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of assumptions <laughs> in that question. <laughs> so, uh, so first of all, uh, I think the work that uh, in silico therapeutics is doing is great, uh, and and Alex uh, Chavronko, um has been, you know, a, a really strong proponent of longevity for a long, long time. So kudos uh, to him and his team for. Uh, for embarking into uh, clinical trials uh, for this drug. Um, I think when they say that the drug was designed entirely through AI, I think that is, uh, you know, uh, in contrast with a more traditional method in which medicinal chemists would look at things mm-hmm. and tweak things back and forth, right? So they, they have a platform that can do a lot of those things in an automated way, uh, which I think is which I think is great. Uh, but we're still a little bit far away from a system that can, look at phenotypic information about a disease, for example, and come up with, with a drug that may be effective for that. Right? So, so something like that, you know, still a little bit far away. Um, you know, I, I can't really talk much about what uh, Demis Hasabis is is working on uh, or not working on. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not close to him. You know, he, mm. he doesn't share what he's working on with me. So I, I can only speculate, you know, same as, mm-hmm. same as anybody else. Um, but I would say, in general, AI is advancing really, really fast. And a lot of the techniques that are built for general AI systems will be useful uh, for biology uh, in many different ways. Like they will be useful for computational biology, say understanding uh, you know, genomic or multiomic data, uh, and in particular in relation to health and disease. And, and I think that would be useful for, for suggesting new therapies uh, or new you know, potential targets uh, for, specific, uh, for specific diseases. 
uh, computational chemistry is advancing also drastically. You know, you know, one of the things that has been very interesting is is how uh, folks within uh, within computational chemistry have been using uh, uh, you know graph neural networks, for example, or or uh, you know geometric uh, neural networks using uh, say equivariant models, uh, and, and people have been able to build uh, uh, say machine learning models for docking that work just as well as, as uh, you know, many traditional heuristics. Uh, people have been building uh, force fields for molecular dynamic simulations with machine learning. Uh, many of them have got, you know, orders of magnitude faster over just a, a few years and, and approaching a level of, of accuracy and ability to scale up that is compatible with traditional force fields. Uh, and, and molecular dynamics is kind of one of the workhorses of, of uh, uh, molecular simulation. So I think you know if, if many of those trends continue, it stands to reason that, that these AI techniques will will be very very useful uh, for a wide variety of, of simulation tasks. Now, having said that, um, there are there are a lot of things that we just don't know how to do, right? So when somebody goes and says, "Well, you know, will will AI be able to cure all diseases?" That is a very complex and, and new expression, right? There are there are you know many diseases for which we have no good therapy for, right? Uh, you know, there are, you know, there are genetic diseases, for example, you know, caused by, by mutations, you know, where we may be able to uh, uh, to uh, to come up with therapeutics, for example, but a genetic disease may be related to the relationship between, you know, different genes in particular ways, right? And we have no, you know, they may be so rare that we have no way to figure out, you know, how, you know, how those, you know, different mutations, you know, relate to create the disease, right? Um, there are, you know, infectious diseases, for example, that are caused by bacteria that, you know, evolve or, or mutate in many different ways that that uh, make them uh, immune to a lot of antibiotics, right? So when we came up with uh, with a new antibiotic, you know, that doesn't mean that that you know, bacteria is not going to continue evolving, right? So, you know, we, we don't have you know, drugs that change over time, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, once the drug is approved, that's that's the molecule, right? That's the compound that is given to people that doesn't change every month, right? Uh, which is, a, you know, it's a very interesting question, right? In a world of software, we're used to, you know, things that are shipped all the time, right? But when a drug is approved, that same drug is, is the one that is given to people for the next 20 years, right? That the drug, that therapy doesn't change. Um, and there are a lot of diseases in which we just don't have good targets, right? Uh, I think in, in many ways, um, a lot of the diseases of aging uh, are problematic because we don't have a deep enough understanding of it. We don't know what the good targets for it are. You know, Alzheimer's, I think, is a great case. For the longest time, we thought that uh, accumulation of uh, amyloid beta amyloids was, was the reason for it, right? And people develop all sorts of, you know, immunotherapies and ways to kind of remove those, those, uh, those amyloid aggregates. And it turned out that that may have been a little bit of a red herring, right? Like that is involved in the in the development of the disease, but uh, but uh, even if we were able to remove them completely, that that, uh, that didn't you know solve the disease, mm -hmm. right? So you know if if we don't have a deep enough understanding of a disease to even know what targets are, there's very little that an AI system, you know, even a, even a a fantastic AI system that could come up with with the right molecule to inhibit a specific target, right? Um, you know, even if we had that, we wouldn't be able to use it to tackle diseases for which we still don't understand what, what those targets are. So, um, you know, the, the way that I think of it is not from the perspective of, you know, 
how could we build this amazing system that will solve every problem, right? I think about it from, uh, from the perspective of, let's try to find the low hanging fruit first uh, and solve that problem and then move on to the next one, right? You know, in, in computer science, we, you know, we have this concept of uh, greedy algorithms, right? Uh, which I think is, is really, uh, it's really useful, right? That you find, you know, uh, uh, an action that takes you towards a, a local minimum and then you continue moving in that, you know, through that local minimum, taking actions that, that are optimal at each step. And for a certain kinds of problems, uh, that algorithm uh, takes you to the right global solution. So I think that is a, a useful way to think about aging. There is so much about aging that we just don't know, but if we could solve one part of it and then another part of it and then another part of it, it stands to reason that we could make uh, progress in the in the overall goal. So, you know, for example, right, like in, you know, one approach uh, regarding aging that I like very much is the is the approach that uh, Aubrey and, 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 and the sense, you know, formerly of the sense foundation push that, uh, the, the main causes of aging are damage, right? So if we could go and repair the damage and restore the system to the state previous to the damage, then uh, then we could alleviate you know, many of the diseases and many of the consequences of aging. So if you can isolate that damage and, and repair it in each step, then you know, eventually you will find out, say, you know, other internal reasons uh, that are not damaged, uh, or or you could, you know. You know, trigger, you know, or, or make sure that that overall system uh, lasts for longer, right? Uh, and I think this is a very interesting approach that a lot of uh, startups with longevity, for example, are exploring. Um, you know, I really like the, the work that uh, Repair Bio, for example, is doing uh, with uh, with an enzyme that breaks down uh, oxidized uh, cholesterol, right? Um, um, uh, Underdog uh, also uh, is uh, they're not called Underdog anymore, right? Uh, this is a uh, so, you know, they're doing, you know, they're trying to tackle that same target through a different approach, right? I think that that approach makes a lot of sense, right? That is, uh, you know, a, a product that accumulates, uh, it causes damage. If you could go and remove it, you know, all other things being equal, it stands to reason that that are even efficient, right? Um, and I think there are a lot of other areas where that same approach can be applied uh, for aging. It does. It sounds like one big issue is not so much the AI technology on the side to do the analysis of what's there. It's that we don't have a lot there to understand what could potentially be there. Like we don't have like these deep data lakes or this, uh, you know, long term biomarkers of humans like we're. I've always felt that as an opportunity for entrepreneurship that uh, I'd buy up or start building out like a blood drive center. And just slowly, and then have like a little checkbox, and you get like an extra like five bucks or a coupon, and then uh, you you let all your your you know your biomarkers be you know go to a, a database for all this research that would exist, and I just you know just keep doing that because uh, blood drives are actually uh, really a profitable uh, businesses, but um, it does seem that a uh, huge limiting factor is we don't have a central repo or a, a huge data lake that people can pull from and have a you know, make larger models from. It does seem like it's kind of like in the old days when we're trying to understand the human brain, we only really understood it through the damage. You know, Phidias Gage got a, a rerode spike through his head. It's like, oh, well, that, that part of the brain kind of regulates uh, some important things. And it seems like we're kind of in a high-tech version of that where we're seeing the damage and assuming, oh, we, we patched that up, we can fix that part of the brain, they won't have that problem anymore. And then um, and then, and then going in that direction. So um, I wish there was a way 
other than just making a giant blood drive and then have an extra box and get an extra coupon um if anyone out there does that please uh send me a coupon but um I want to trademark it. I, I think uh, you had the you had the Mark Himalayan uh, in the show. I think mm-hmm. uh, back and and he talked a little bit about that. Right? I think it's interesting that we don't have the public uh, government organizations collecting all that data. Uh, you know, there are there are efforts that are ongoing. For example, I think for the brain, right? Um, I'm I'm familiar with the Allen Institute here in Seattle that is it's been doing really interesting work. Um, uh in uh, in human brain but unfortunately there's nobody collecting the data would necessarily for doing something like this you know specifically in the context of uh, of aging yeah so mm-hmm. so that is a that's a big gap yeah you can just license it out i feel like they you make money for this and someone needs to do this so i don't have to do this it's essentially my my logic i like telling people my ideas i don't know if you do this i like telling people my ideas and if they do it then i don't have to do it you know, it's like, it's a win-win. I'll just go focus on something else that no one else is focusing on. Um, you know, because like sometimes people are like, kind of like a uh, little bat people and they don't like telling people their ideas because uh, they think people are going to steal them. Not that yeah. you are a bat person in any way, but you know, like there's a le- there's a layer where people don't t- share ideas because they're afraid people steal them, you know, versus like yeah. they're, they're working out the IP and stuff, which makes sense. Um, yeah, you know, I think um, ideas that are, are really not worth that much. Yeah. Right? And any, any interesting idea probably has occurred to many other people. Uh, at the same time, like, you know, some of these things are not truly novel, right? Uh, you know, it, even in the context of, of uh, you know, startups or, or companies trying to do things, you know, so many ideas, you know, they, they look interesting on the side and, and people have been many out of them, right? But what really is valuable is being able to execute on those ideas. I think it's the same in object. There's so many ideas about potential experiments that we could do, um, things that would be useful to learn more about the mechanisms of aging or diseases, uh, potential therapies that could be explored. But um, but the tricky part is actually making that happen, right? So you could go and say, well, you know, rapamycin, for example, you know, is this simple interesting drug, you know, it seems to, you know, work, you know, the mechanisms that it affects the conservative species, that's the reason that it may be useful. Uh, to protect against aging damage in humans, right? So you could go and say, well, you know, why somebody why doesn't somebody come up with a better uh, molecule similar to rapamycin, but but patented uh, or, or something that is patentable, and then go and and do clinical trials and then you know, make millions out of it. I mean, is that a good idea or a bad idea? I don't know. I think it's probably a good idea, right? Like you know, the, the reason people are not, I mean, and some people are, I guess, you know, working on it, right? But I would say. The idea itself is worth nothing, right? Anybody that has to spend, you know, a year, a couple of years in longevity come up with a whole bunch of different ideas. The problem is that executing on this idea costs millions of dollars and takes years of work, right? You could say the same thing about synalytics, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, talk a little bit about uh, the satinavector setting and, and the experiment that was done at the myoclinic in mice and so on. Oh, all that's great, right? You know, none of these, you know, drugs are are under uh, patent protection anymore, if I remember right. So, like the interesting thing would be, you know, could somebody find a synolytic or a combination of synolytics that targets senescent cells better, and then do a clinical trial and prove that that is useful for for a variety of uh, of uh, for other diseases in humans? Sure, right. You know, how much is this idea worth? Nothing, right? You know, what is important is, you know, who's going to, you know, 
spend the millions of dollars and, and, and years of work are going to be required to take that all the way from an idea to, to an actual therapeutic. I think in longevity, people in general have been very open uh, sharing the kinds of things that they are working on. Uh, you know, which doesn't mean that the ideas are more valuable, but what it means is that the, the real value comes from executing on those ideas. I was recently listening to a podcast with Matt Angle, who's the founder of Paradromics, which is a competitor to Neuralink. Though, I, Matt, if you're listening, I'm not a fan of your technology, uh, but I still think it's a good one. But the uh, in terms of architecture, I think it's just a little antiquated compared to what Neuralink's doing. But the, um, he talked about how the brain-computer interface phase uh, state, like the the industry, is one where like people are very open, like longevity, but they're right at the moment where. Um, like everything used to be like Intel in the old days, but then everyone broke apart from Intel and started building their own chip companies and 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 uh, doing their own thing. And then they were more quiet in that that time period. And then they they reaggregated up. And it seems like longevity's in that phase where there's not like they're in a phase of openness because there's not an there, there's a lot to go around. There's a like more things can be done by working together. And then eventually there will be a phase where like people go back to being quiet and being closed off. It, it seems as is what was what is happening now in uh, BCI technology, and I imagine will help in, in longevity as well. At at some point, when a critical mass of people are there, which I don't think is there yet, I, don't, I think there's a lot of interest, but I don't think there's enough people working in it and dedicating their lives to it to the point where um, it's there is that watershed moment. I don't know many industries at a certain point, industry just starts closing off and building up walls and and saying you can't come in and you know working with IP and stuff like that, which is which is sad. But then if you just have a beer with them, they'll tell you. A, the things you just, they just don't they don't talk about them in public which is kind of sad but yeah yeah i mean there's also a you know some industries i think have people that are more driven towards uh that are more mission driven than driven by profit right so yeah, you know, one thing that I, that I really enjoy, for example, is in, in the AI field, like people publish their results uh, openly, right? You know, there's there's a tradition and there's a, a, a culture of publishing results. And I think that has been massively positive, right? It's part of the reason why AI moves so incredibly fast because people are building on top of each other. Uh, you know, that doesn't happen in pharma in general, for example. I think it would be great if longevity follows in that tradition in the sense that or follows that that pattern and people can build on top of each other and iterate faster rather than protect every single idea in the hope that there may be some economic value out of it. And I think an interesting thing of in the world of longevity right now is that people that are in it tend to be more mission driven than people in other industries, uh, which is great. Uh, and, and I think, you know, in, in some ways, uh, it's, it's crazy that that there aren't more people in the champion, right? Like, you know, I, I think, you know, you know maybe there's, there's still a lot of people out there right, that are not uh, as, as conscious about their, you know, their own mortality, right? Um, so I think the folks within the longevity field have, have realized that at the end of the day, we are, we're all in the same boat, right? Um, you know, we're all, human and, and unless we do something about it we'll have a very limited uh, amount of time uh, uh, in this planet so mm -hmm. you know it's great if we can all work together to start yeah. uh, solving that a collaboration is, is key especially at this phase of it i imagine when there's more vcs 
and more MBAs in the equation that just look at things as like little bean counters, then 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 they'll start ruining the pot for everybody and slow things down, which sucks. But maybe at the same time, we, we can like rehabilitate them like uh, wounded koalas on the side of the road. So longevity fellowship, uh, uh, we mentioned this a couple of times. You're a counselor there. What is the special sauce that you bring to the table? You have you have such a diverse background. You started a, um, in mathematics, which I think is like the I think I'm 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 quoted for saying numbers are delicious. I think they're they're fun to play with. Like how often, when you're working on an equation or, or working on a problem, is like the solution of the problem in the problem that you're working on? I kind of like that simplicity. Maybe, maybe on your level, maybe there's no the solutions, but like on the one like calculus and stuff, like you just look at it long enough, and you work on it, and like eventually you work out the problem. But um, what when you go in to help people, what what is the thing that you bring that they seem to need the most help with? So I would say a couple of things and, and my journey i think has been um a little uh, a little bit different than, than most of the people that are interested in longevity right in the sense that i don't come from a biology background right so i come from from a tech background and i have you know you know my professional experience has been building something right so i would say a couple of things that are interesting one of them are is um uh, that because I came from that background, I had to go through the journey of trying to figure out where I could contribute to the field. So, um, you know, for people that, you know, again, come from that biology or life sciences background, I think you know, they they don't have that problem, right? You know, somebody who's who's an MD, right? You know, I mean, there are, you know, very clear ways in which they can contribute to longevity, right? You know, somebody that has a, a PhD in molecular biology, right? It's very obvious how they can you know, try to figure out different mechanisms and, and try to, you know, advance their understanding of aging in a specific way. But for folks that come from tech, uh, you know, there are many, many people who, who find themselves in this situation. Uh, they they may have a career where they have made, you know, good money, right? And then maybe, you know, working on interesting stuff, but maybe there's something missing, right? Uh, and and being able to to work on advancing our understanding of, of longevity and aging and, and hopefully at some point be able to contribute to the therapies, a lot of the some of those things, that is a path that you know, many of us have to go through, right? And and I think I you know I already went through that. So I developed a, a way of thinking about it and a framework that I think is mm -hmm. useful for other people. Second thing is for me, a lot of that translated into uh, computational chemistry. And, um, you know, I would say, um, I don't know if it's, you know, the, the area where I could contribute the most or not, right? But, uh, you know, where I always tell people, right, is, uh, you know, just like the, the old saying, uh, when all that you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, coming from, from the software side of the world and having working in in AI for a while, you know, I have a, a set of capabilities and a set of tools. So I look for, you know, where can I use those tools? So, uh, you know, I used to tell people, I'm I'm not going to go and, and, and put on a, a, a white coat and, and jump on a lab and start doing experiments on mice. You know, there are you know, a million people in the world that could do that better than I can. But the kinds of things that, that I know how to do are, you know, building software and leveraging you know, AI and, and other technologies to drive new insights into, into information, right? So, so that's what led me to start learning about computational chemistry uh, and different things that we can do to improve the way that we simulate uh, molecules and biological systems. Um, so uh, when I was uh, participating in the last edition of the camp, I was a counselor, uh, people, uh, sessions that, that I was teaching were about uh, 
computation chemistry and, and what kinds of tools can be useful in the very early stages of, uh, of drug discovery, right? The in silico drug discovery part, like how would somebody explore different ideas, try to you know, set up experiments, you know, get, get results, you know, trying to ideate a lot, but, you know, kind of molecules would be useful for certain types of things. Um, basically the, the introductory part of, of the in silico drug discovery world. Mm -hmm. uh, the nice thing about helping other people is they get to be kind of like case studies. Like that's one of the reasons why I don't mind, mind turning other people or given uh, also it's like, you, I don't know if you ever, you've heard this, the saying, like give someone 20 bucks and you've never hear, hear from them again. Like, you, you, you know, it's a pretty good investment. So it's like, I like giving people help. And then if I, uh, if they're like worried about it, it's like, all right, well, I just saved my time. But uh, one of the benefits outside of just, you know, the utilitarian, what I just said is the, you can see how they go out, they go out and take your idea and mold it and, and use it to inspire them to do something else, which then builds up your own muscle and then the community's muscles and longevity on uh, different ways to execute ideas. And so um, when you've talked about computational chemistry and you've talked about different ways of executing on using in silico models and uh, like using technology to advance that section of the, of, of the from A to you know people using it, um, are there interesting tactics or strategies that people have used or like generated from those conversations that have surprised you? Um, I think it's still a little bit, a little bit early. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, I, I haven't seen much in that sense. Yeah, and to be honest, you know, one of the things that was shocking for me when I started um, spending a little bit more time in the field was how little uh, most of the folks in longevity were using some of this technology. And I think that stems from the fact that they come from purely uh, experimental background. Um, so a lot of the people that are working in longevity right now come from, say, you know, PhDs, for example, postdocs, where they were doing uh, experiments related to lifespan uh, of animals, right? So a lot of people have experience in in yeast and, and, and worms and mice and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, that's, that's how, uh, you know, a big part of the longevity field has evolved, right? Like, you know, you, you have an idea for some some therapy that may make a meaningful difference, right? And then you go and test it in worms, right? Uh, you know, that's what the, you know, for our biomedical, for example, you know, that Mark Evelyn is, uh, is working, right? Like they, they have all sorts of, you know, small molecules that they believe that can extend lifespan. So they go and feed those molecules to worms and then they go and test it. And, you know, mm -hmm. they check if the worm lives longer or not, right? Um, you know, same thing for mice, right? You could go and say, well, you know, have an idea for this, you know, molecule that can you know, senescent cells and I suspect the mice will live longer, right? So you go and, and get those, you know, animals and put them in cages and, and, you know, feed them this stuff and then watch them for three years. And, and eventually you realize, do they live longer or not? It's because so many people come from that background. I think they're not as familiar with the uh, in silico uh, part of uh, drug discovery. Um, I think a few people are 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 familiar with uh, uh, computational biology techniques, so they understand if you have genomic data or other multiomic data, you can go and do, uh, say, you know, studies where you try to figure out which genes are upregulated or downregulated. You know, as as an organism ages, for example, or if you apply certain interventions to that organism, you can figure out well, you know, how does my proteomic data change, for example, or my transcriptomic data, and so on and so forth. So they understand a little bit of, of that computation of biology side of, side of the world. Uh, but if you go a little bit beyond that to the uh, 
computational chemistry, right? I think most people are not as familiar with it, right? With computational chemistry, I mean the, the basics of you know simulating, you know, how molecules interact, right? So you know, people would would go and and but they understand, for example, that you know, rapamycin is a molecule that binds to the anthocyanin complex, right? But I would say there are very few people who would even know how to simulate that, to, to take your M2C1 uh, structure and take your, you know, rapamycin structure and generate all, you know, variety of conformations and then, you know, run different, you know, docking algorithms or molecular dynamic simulations to try to figure out how that, you know, actual binding, you know, works, right? And what's the affinity, the affinity of it and, and so on and so forth. Um, most of those computational techniques are not taught to biologists, right? Um, you know, the, I think the, the computers in chemistry world has been fairly isolated, uh, specifically, you know, fairly isolated from, from longevity. Um, so that was one of the things where, uh, one of the reasons why we started delving a little bit into this, right? And in, in, in the last edition of the, of the Ojibwe uh, Biotech Fellowship retreat um, that uh, gave a lesson about computational chemistry, kind of try to, you know, open it up the, the, the perspective of, of some of these people to this, you know, whole new set of tools uh, that can be used for, you know, for, uh, for, this, uh, for this research work. Uh, the great thing is the internet, thanks to Google, uh, was part of this, but uh, the world is indexable. You, you have like all this capacity to learn on the internet. So if they don't have that knowledge base given their background, where would they go online, people listening in who see this as an opportunity, where would they go to learn more about this, these type of tools and techniques? Is there a spot or a person who's who's talking think, about this? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, this is one of the things that um, I used to, um, I used to uh, uh, joke with people uh, years ago when I was kind of getting started with longevity. Um, you know, if, if you don't come from a computer science uh, background and want to learn a little bit uh, of programming, that's very easy to do. The, mm -hmm. uh, the programming world has become very friendly, very open to newcomers, right? So somebody that studies philosophy can go and spend, you know, eight weeks in a bootcamp learning JavaScript and then learn how to make, you know, uh, dynamic websites and so on and so forth. And then after eight weeks, they call themselves programmer. And many people like that, you know, find jobs and, and, and then develop in technology, right? But imagine doing it, you know, the other way around in biology, right? Imagine taking a computer scientist, putting them on a two month bootcamp, you know, doing experimental work on mice. And then after those two months, they call themselves a biologist. You'd be like, that makes no sense whatsoever, right? Uh, I think part of the problem is that the, the biology and the longevity world haven't been super open to, I guess, intellectual foreigners in some way. It's, mm -hmm. it's very, really hard to, to learn about this, these things. So unfortunately, there's no good resource uh, that, that I can give to people. Um, I mean, there are, you know, there are a lot of you know, textbooks, there are a lot of online courses on specific parts of it, but I don't think there's any good compendium of Groups of programs that, that somebody can can go through, uh, and I'm yeah I say I'm far from an expert in in any of these you know areas right so you know I, I have I think you know after a few years I have a little bit of a working knowledge uh, around some of these methods and, and I've run them myself and I know a little bit about how they work but I'm but I'm far from an expert right so um, uh, 
uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think there's a there's an easy path. Mm. Well, they say the best way to learn is to teach. So if you ever want to make like a course or something, I'm, I'm happy to sit down and like maybe I can like we can all like crowdsource it together. Because if there's nothing out there, that sounds like a great opportunity to get people um, involved. You know, maybe there's like a little like little course thing we can make or something, and then get go- yeah, uh, Google to fund it. Fun. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, we can host it on their their cloud uh, or something or, like that. Computational uh, chemistry 101, right? Yeah, yes. For, for biologists. Yeah. We'll call it working knowledge. Uh, working knowledge is not not expert. Uh, just uh, we'll like we'll be very upfront about it. So, um, I have like a bunch of rapid fire questions for you because uh, people asked a lot of questions and there's no <laughs> there's like so just 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 if you don't like the question or you you know just just say pass okay because some of them are, like they're like a little personal from my point of view and I'll you'll know when they're mine because I I won't cite the person who asked. So the first one is lunchbox. Uh, ultimate which this person actually asks lots of great questions all the time but um what startups in biology have you personally invested in and why um uh, i will i will say one uh, so i invested in repair bio actually uh, which is working on atherosclerosis and, and ASH, uh using this uh, uh, enzyme that can break down circuit cholesterol that was i think the last investment that i did on longevity uh, I think it's incredibly exciting technology. And if it works, then then it would be also a massive uh, business. When you invest, do you get a better newsletter of what goes on in the company? Yes. Like if I give them like a, okay. I'll, I'll, I want to give it like everyone a dollar so I can get all like the good information. Um, but I can't I share, like, right? You know, and, yes. and, and the yeah. companies get upset when, when this stuff comes Well, up. I just keep it to myself. Uh, you know, just, you, have to, you do have to label like, lol, you can share and lol, you can't share. <laughs> Girls like like oh I can show this to someone uh, which has gotten me in trouble one time and then now I don't do it to anyone. So uh, what are some books you recommend people check out? It doesn't have to be in the space or just things that you've read recently that you think people get a kick out of reading. Oh goodness, uh, I I recently read um, Peter Atiyah's new book. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it was, it was great. You know, probably sorry. The book that's now on. Oh, oh he was on Oprah with it. Uh, I well, I don't watch Oprah, so <laughs> I, I just, it I, came up in the newsfeed, and I was like, "Oh, that's neat." Uh, got yeah, like a, it's, it's like one of those uh, yeah. Oprah books that he, she, she recommends. Yeah, uh, you know, it's um, for anybody that has been on Jerry for a while, right? It's going to be a, a little bit too basic, uh, but I think it's a great book. I've been actually recommending it to like friends and family and, and people that are outside of the field, uh, and yeah. I think people are enjoying. It. Yeah, uh, I'll have to check it out. I've not read it. The, um, will you ever finish your PhD when you're as as you know? In particular, this is my question, by the way. The uh, this is a credentialized society. You dropped out, or you didn't drop out. I don't know what the terms are for these things. I did. But... I did drop out. Yes. Okay. <laughs> will Will you Will you get that credential? Will you get that little merit badge so you can put it on the wall? And maybe people are nicer to you. I don't know if they're meaner to you because you don't have uh, a PhD. Will you ever finish makes, your PhD? It makes no sense for me whatsoever. <laughs> I actually, you know, I, I tell people that now, uh, being a PhD dropout, I use it as a as a badge of honor, right? Hmm. You know, I, I think you know a lot of people in life are stuck uh in their ways right and they continue doing something regardless of whether it makes sense or not um for me the fact that i recognized early enough that it didn't make sense to pursue the academic path uh was uh was something nice i, I could have continued another two three years right, and, and spend those those three years of my life for something that would have made very little difference for me uh, the, the reason i started is is because i i really enjoy mathematics uh and uh uh, and I, like, I, I enjoy the actual work of, of uh, mathematical research. I thought that was that was uh, uh, you know an important part of my life uh, at some point. Uh, but uh, you know, my priorities change, right? So I would never finish it. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. The is there a weird thing going on? So I haven't taken graduate level courses before in math. Is there is there something weird in math that you follow that is that you can synthesize just like a, a layman? Because like sometimes I wonder. So there's this great movie called Contact, and in it, well, I think it's maybe in the book by Carl Sagan. They say at a certain point when you do pi, like it makes a, a like a circle of zeros. And they think that's weird or something. I don't know. I'm like, I'm parap- like, I'm butchering it. So I always wonder, like, what, where is there like some weird magic stuff in math? Because I, I feel like math is where we, the Arthur C. Clarke quote of um, it's like so alien. Like sometimes it's like not intuitive. So like, it's is there some like language, right? You know, if, yeah. if aliens uh, exist, and you know, they, they they should exist, right? If you listen to you know uh, Fermi or whatever, right? The universe is just too big for aliens not to exist. Um, you know, mathematics is a universal language in the sense that it's just ideas, right? So regardless mm-hmm. of, you know, different ways that different intelligences may exist in the universe, the language that they would understand is mathematics. Right? So yeah. there's a universal quality out of it. Um, I don't know what the example that you mentioned about, you know, pi, right? But, but pi is a transcendent number, right? So in general, any sequence of numbers will be present inside of mm-hmm. the digit expansion of it uh, with, uh, uh, you know, uh, with, uh, uh, so, so you know, if you say, well, you know, is there like a sequence of like, you know, seven, you know, zeros, you know, in pi, but yeah, I, yeah, I don't know about that example. Like mathematics is full of really uh, interesting facts and, and, and paradoxes. Uh, so, you know, we could spend another hour, you know, talking uh, a lot about that. You know, my my favorite uh, was, um, uh, I'm backing out on the name now. Uh, let me actually look it up very quickly so I can tell you the exact name. Mm-hmm. The Banach-Tarsky paradox. So, uh, um, you know, uh, I'm not going to get into the details, but you know, if somebody's interested, they can look it up. Right? But one of the this is a, a paradox that comes up in in uh, in measure theory, right? So you have a ball, you know, like you could imagine a, a ball, you know, for certain you know diameter or certain radius. And what this what this theorem says is that you can take that ball and you can split it into uh, a finite number of pieces, right? So you basically cut it down. It's not really cutting, but you basically cut it down into, mm-hmm. into certain pieces. And then you transform those pieces without changing you know, the, the size, without expanding or, or contracting. Right? So you take those pieces and then you move them around. Uh, so you rotate them or you translate them. So you cut this, this sphere into a certain number of pieces, and then you move those pieces around, and then you come up with two spheres. Okay, And, and you can do that in a way that the volume of the first sphere is, you know, whatever you want, one, right? And it's a solid sphere. And then you cut it down, you break down into two pieces, and then you come up with two solid spheres. And each one is of the exact same volume as the original sphere. So you can think, well, how could that be possible? Well, it is actually possible, and you can prove that you can actually do that. That is the that is the the Banach-Tarski uh, paradox. Like right? you can you can actually prove that there is a, a sequence or uh, that is a way to divide the points in that original sphere. And there's a sequence of transformations that you can apply to come up with two spheres of the exact same volume as the first one uh, without, you know, again, like you know, expanding or contracting or whatever, like literally just, you know, rotating and and moving. Uh, so I think that's one of the things that, you know, really, you know, trips people up. It's 100% true.
Hmm. Yeah, it is weird. I'm gonna have to Google it after this because that does sound odd. But um, so then, uh, Lunchbox again asks, "What conferences, bio- biology conferences, do you recommend people check out?" Um, I really like the um, ARDD conference in Copenhagen mm-hmm. uh, every year. I think that's coming up uh, at the end of August. Uh, so that one is is uh, is a lot of fun. Uh, I'm pretty much you know a lot of everybody that that is doing interesting things in longevity goes to that one. Mm-hmm. And then, and then uh, the BJ... biotech fellowship, of course, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, they they got referenced so many times. They they you know at the they should be at the bottom by this point. The BD weird name. I'm gonna keep you BDs, and uh, you should know who you are. Uh, what if any collaborations does he do with Alex Z Z H A V O R O and K O V Zavara Nakov? Yeah. Well, I personally. Yeah, I, I personally don't work with uh, with Silico. I think they're doing great work, right? I just mm. haven't had the chance to work with them. Okay, that's the official story. He's not telling us the, the details. So what TV... I'm just joking. The, what TV show or movie defines your childhood when you think about it? Uh, TV show or movie that what? Defines your childhood. When you think about your childhood, oh. is there like a TV show or movie that you'd watch or that you watch and it, it reminds you of that time in your life? Mm, not really um mm. especially not so much in my childhood I, I was always more of a video game person than a oh. tv was there a video person. game uh yeah lots uh i mean uh i you know my my favorite video game of, of all time you know not so much in my childhood but a little bit later was uh uh mass effect uh the mass effect trilogy mm-hmm. Arguably the best video game uh, trilogy uh, ever made, um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I would say, you know, that was that was pretty significant for me. But you know, from, from my childhood, I remember, you know, lots and lots of games uh, that I used to play. Uh, GoldenEye on the Nintendo mm-hmm. 64. You know, that was. Uh, I, I remember spending hours and hours and hours playing that with friends. Yeah. Did you ever play uh, Ocarina of Time, the Zelda on 64? Yes. Oh, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic game. Yeah, I, I I still remember it. You know, so many years later. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite Zelda game, even with all these giant open world ones. It uh, there's some just like it's a closed, it's small, but there's a lot of dy- uh, dynamism in there. Or like uh, Mazora's Mask, that one was weird because it had like time in it, which is kind of odd. Um, is there a food that you remember from your childhood, or that that uh, I, I feel like food transports people? So I'm just kind of curious. Um, not so much for me. Hmm. Um. I mean, I love Spanish food. Um, every time I go back to Spain, you know, that's like one of the one of the highlights. You know, just being able to eat uh, real Spanish food. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm partial to uh, Spanish uh, tortilla de patatas, and like one of the things that I remember from from my childhood. Uh, I've never had that, so I'm gonna have to eat that later. Um, like a souffle of uh, of uh, eggs and uh, potato and uh, onion. So it's not like Mexican tortilla, right? Like the Spanish tortilla is very different. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a very characteristic of, of uh, Spanish food. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, my my understanding of Spain is mainly historical, like the Reconquista and you know other things that happened. Um, so I, I have to get more into the food side of things. So who who is the better CEO, uh, Sundar Pinchai or Satya Nadella, in your opinion? Well, I mean, I, I would have to say Sunday, right? Like, you know, yeah. I mean, it, it pays, uh, you know, pays my salary, right? So I don't have much yeah. of a choice. Yeah. All right. Um, then I think that was the, the last uh, question. Um, there's a 
few longer ones, but uh, we're running out of time. So I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Is um, when it comes to you have a website, but it's updated infrequently. Is there a good spot to follow along with what you what you're working on? Just your excitement for the longevity field. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say Twitter uh, or, or LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect with people uh, in, in either of those. Um, I try to post on my website every once in a while when when I have something a little bit. Uh, longer than I want to say. Uh, but yeah, I would say Twitter is probably the best place. Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, are the best mm. places to connect. Sweet. So we will we will look forward to the uh, working knowledge of uh, of that we mentioned earlier. The the course that we're going to make. The all right then. Uh, thanks for coming on the show today, and everyone listening. If you got something from this episode, please leave it in the comments. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. A quick note: Uncle Sam wants you to help make this show successful. Subscribe and become a member today. 